Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I am glad that you're here today. This week's episode is a special encore episode. We're going to go way back in the vaults to bring to you my conversation with Turney Duff. Turney is a writer, a former Wall Street trader, and is the author of a New York Times bestselling book called The Buy Side, A Wall Street Trader's Tale of Spectacular Excess. I say success at some point during the uh, the interview, but it's excess, and that excess took the form of drinking and drugs and uh, addiction, and Turney lays it all out in this incredible book, which is one of my favorite books about Wall Street ever. I sincerely mean that. I'm proud to say that Turney has become a pretty good friend in the years since we basically met for the second time, but had the first real conversation of our of our relationship. We have a relationship now, apparently. The first real conversation that we had as pals in this in this interview. We met through our, our mutual friend, Jesse Itzler, the author, the entrepreneur, the ultra-athlete. What is he called? Supreme mega-athlete. You know what I'm talking about. He runs really long distances without stopping. Uh, ultra-marathoner. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, this conversation happened in Jesse's basement, and it happened shortly after I walked into um, a glass door. And so my head was ringing and I have a big welt on my forehead. <laughs> so it was pretty funny the way it started. And Turney and I had a great conversation. He's a very smart, very funny dude. And he was very vulnerable and laying out his story in this book. And it's an important one. I think it's something that you might even want to share with your kids, your older ones anyway, to let them know that things can happen and you can bounce back from them, but probably best to avoid them if you can Hey, before I turn it over to Turney, I want to remind you all, yes, yes, once again, I have shows coming up this weekend in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That is June 23rd and 24th of 2023, that is. And next month, I will be in Charlotte co-headlining the Charlotte Comedy Zone on July 23rd. So go to paulollinger.com and click on shows and you'll see more information about that. Or you can go to those Comedy Club's websites and get your tickets for those shows there. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is Turney Duff. Welcome to the broadcast. I am here with Turney Duff, author, New York Times bestselling author, excuse me, of The Buy Side, A Wall Street Trader's Tale of Spectacular Success. It is a gripping read of a man's journey through money, addiction, and lots more. Turney, thank you for doing the podcast with me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, most important question of the interview where does the name Turney come from? Turney is my great-great-grandmother's maiden name, and my great-great-grandfather was kicked out of Scotland for drinking, which is unheard of. <laughs> You've got to be a pretty pretty meaningful drinker to, I, yeah. to violate the rules of, I'm of not propriety sure how in it's Scotland. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's a feat. <laughs> Definitely a feat. Wow. Do you know what he did to... Uh... I don't. I do know that he passed away when he was 31. Oh, that's a drag. And I believe it was alcohol related. But then life expectancy in Scotland 200 years ago was yeah. probably like 32 and a half. <laughs> right. So on a percentage basis, he almost got there. <laughs> yes. You describe yourself as uh, just an average kid from Kennebunk. Maine, where you finished fourth in the 1984 Kennebunk Junior High Science Fair. Yes. Was this the crushing defeat that, that started it all? <laughs> defeat? What are you talking about? That was a victory. Dude, you didn't even show. <laughs> I came in fourth. I think, I think that qualifies. What was the project? For the science fair, it was 
Sadly, I do believe it was the volcano. <laughs> With the baking powder and yes. vinegar. It's not that that's terrible. It's just so predictable. Yeah. 1984, that's, what do you want? <laughs> the technology wasn't as good. <laughs> the volcano's a solid one. It's a classic anyway. Who won? Do you remember who won? I, no, I don't. You don't remember why you got beat? I beat? don't. All right. So what, when you were, when you're, after you got through your science phase, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, uh, early on, I originally thought I wanted to be a chef. And, you know, shortly after that, I saw a movie and I decided I wanted to be a con man. Yeah. Well, hey, that's how you ended up on Wall Street. Well, my first my first heist was I blackmailed a a girl named Kelly in sixth grade. I wrote her a note and said if she didn't leave a dollar in the book Backboard Magic on page forty seven, that I was going to tell everyone at recess who who her boyfriend was. Mm -hmm. And so she told the teacher, and I got in trouble. So I was like, all right. I'm done being a con man. I think blackmail is a federal offense, <laughs> and it's that that it would that, that plays very closely to some sexual harassment in yeah. today's world. Probably not a good resume builder. Yeah, and then uh, in high school, I thought I wanted to go into hotel management. I was going to go right. to UNLV. Uh huh. And then Jerry Tarkanian, baby. Yeah, and uh, for whatever reason, I decided to to be a journalism major, and I went to Ohio University. Is that what took you to Ohio? Was journalism? Yes, and partly I wanted to be able to see the Cleveland Browns play every Sunday. Okay. And living up in Maine, I was like, well, i got to go to school in Ohio. And so... Right. The Cleveland Browns. I was born in Cleveland. Okay. that The Cleveland Browns informed your college yeah, decision, choice. your college yeah. choice. Wow. That's... Well, if you remember in the 80s, like... Yes. That was our decade. Mm-hmm. I mean, we never made it to the Super Bowl, but like... Was that Jim Plunkett? Was that or was that the Bengals? No, we were we were Bernie Kosar. Oh, Bernie, right, right. So you go to college to both study major and to uh, study journalism and to um, to to see the Cleveland Browns play. Did you mention that in your application essay? <laughs> I really wanted because of your stellar journalism program, and so I can see the Browns play. I didn't know. I didn't bring it up. It was kind of like a a perk. So what what drew you to journalism? I always loved writing. I loved mm-hmm. being creative. Right. And so, like, you know, in high school, I was convincing my Spanish teacher to allow me to do a Brady Bunch skit in Spanish, right? Uh-huh. And I'd film it and, you know, everything. Uh, I convinced my high school English teacher, instead of writing a term paper, to to learn how to write a screenplay and, and you know, submit that. And mm-hmm. So I knew that I, I liked writing. And so it just seemed sort of like a natural fit. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing was when I graduated from college, I was like, if I write one more sentence, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, screw that. I ended up, you know, back at my parents' house in Maine, you know, house heated by a wood stove. Right. Very simple life. And I'm sitting on the couch saying to myself, I'm like, I, I need a job. And right. so yeah. I packed up the U-Haul, had a giant lobster on us at American Moose from Maine. Yep. I drive to Manhattan. I'm wearing LL Bean boots and a J. Crew jacket. And I'm <laughs> right. like, let's do this. It's a good look. And I ended up calling my uncle when I had when I because I struggled trying to find a job. Right. And I called my uncle and I didn't prepare what I was gonna say. And you know, after all of my ums, ahs, and dead silence, he said, I'll call you back in ten minutes. He calls me back. He's like, All right, you got ten interviews this week. I was like, For what? Right. He's like, Oh, just say you want to get into sales. I was like, I knew he worked on Wall Street, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And on, on my first interview, I ended up at, uh, down Seven World Trade Center 
at Lehman Brothers, and I'm wearing a Filene's untailored, you know, suit. I got a stack of resumes, and I walk in there, and I had no idea what they were doing, but I just said, I want in. What, what did you think Wall Street did before you started, before you got down there in your Filene's basement suit? I mean, I had, I had, I was terrified because I pretty much knew I didn't really fit in or I wasn't qualified. I wasn't a very good student. Mm-hmm. So I thought Wall Street was super smart people who like analyzed companies and you know I, I guess my perspective was people were analysts like and they told you whether you should buy or sell a stock right like like they were they were analysts for retail clients but not you had no idea the billions that traded hands I had no idea about that hour. and and I didn't know about the social element of wheeling and dealing and, and being a trader and and a salesman where you don't need to analyze anything. Right. You're just tr- transacting the right. whole time. Were your parents in the financial world at all, or what, what kind of work did they do? No. Uh, my dad was a chemical engineer, and my mom was uh, like a stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. I have three older sisters. I grew up, the most my father ever made was $150,000. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was more money than you could ever make in the world. Not bad change in the 80s. No, it was it was great. Yeah. You know, he 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 sent four kids to college. Right. He lived in a decent house. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was okay. Mm-hmm. And so one of my early Wall Street interviews, you know, some some like hotshot kid was like, "Well, how much do you think, you know, what do you want to make?" And I, and I threw out the number $150,000. Right. He laughed at me. <laughs> he, he goes, "I made that last month." That's I was just hilarious. Like, what? Like I didn't get it, you know? Yeah. And so there was a big difference between, you know, Maine rich and New York rich. So you're going to, what year is this you're going to, for these I, interviews on Wall I Street? Moved, I moved to city in 94. Okay. So Wall Street, the movie came out in what, 87, something like so, that. Yeah. So, yeah. so a lot of people at that time are moving to Wall Street to be the next Bud Fox, to be the next Gordon Gecko, or to live the Tom Wolf bonfire, the vanity right. lifestyle. But you were oblivious to all that. So oblivious. Yeah. So my buddy, uh, my roommate at the time, one time we're sitting down and we're hanging out and, and he goes, hey, man, he's like, you remember Dave from, from BC? Because my, my roommate went to Boston College. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. He's like, he got an interview at Goldman Sachs. Right. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, like fancy department store? I'm like, <laughs> am I supposed to be impressed? <laughs> like, I didn't know what Goldman Sachs was. Right. And meanwhile, I, I was interviewing there like two days later. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I, that's how I felt my first week at business school. I had no idea what I, – I didn't know what consultants did. I didn't know what banks were what banks. And I, I couldn't tell you that, you know, like Fleet Bank in Boston was, was less prestigious than Goldman Sachs. It never even occurred to me. Right. They're both right. banks. I mean, that's where you get your auto loans, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no idea. Attorney going to sign up for some uh, some credit cards at Goldman Sachs. Okay, so you get – so you're down there. You're interviewing in your Filene's basement suit. Yeah. And you don't know what you're doing. How do you get hired? For me, my uncle set up 10 interviews, so mm-hmm. they were all friendly, mm-hmm. right? The questions weren't hard, and it was more kind of like getting to know you. And I was 0 for 9, uh, and on my 10th one, you know, I was just at the point where the manager's basically saying, you're like, well, give me your resume and, you know, keep in touch. Sure. And all of a sudden, this woman comes down from the 37th floor, and she works in a different department called Private Wealth Management. Mm-hmm. And... She'd gotten a call from my uncle, and she's like, why don't you, you know, come up to my floor? And so I, I started interviewing with this woman, and it turned out 
that she had missed the previous night's episode of Melrose Place. <laughs> That's awesome. And and you know we didn't have DVR or anything like that, <laughs> right? And she she sort of mentioned it, and I was like, well, I'm like. Sydney taped Billy having sex with a hooker, and she showed it to Samantha. Mm-hmm. And she's like, get out of here. <laughs> we ended up having this great conversation, right. and I was hired shortly thereafter. That Michael is so smug. <laughs> <laughs> so Melrose Place is what got you a job yeah. at which firm Morgan was that? Morgan Stanley. At Morgan Stanley. <laughs> See, kids, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> Quit studying. Watch more television. Yes. Bone up on your pop culture. You're in at the biggest banks. There is some truth to that, though, because I talk to young kids entering the workforce all right. the time now, yeah. and and I very often say, I'm like, you need to be interesting and likable outside of work. Everyone can do the job, right? but they're picking someone they want to sit next to for 12 hours a day, mm-hmm. so it might not be Melrose Place, right? but you, you need interest and hobbies and depth outside of your, your business. Read, read up on how... Uh... Lyndon Johnson made up interests in baseball to woo fellow senators when he was a junior senator to get placed on the the most prestigious committees. <laughs> what a bullshit artist! But it works, right? So you get hired. You're you're work. So now you're on the desk at Wall Street, and you don't know what's going on, right? So during the day, I'm out connected, out degreed, out experienced. I don't mm-hmm. have a chance. I'm B student, Ohio University with journalism degree, mm-hmm. nine seventy SAT score. <laughs> I'm sitting next to a guy from Harvard. You didn't crack four digits, man? <laughs> no. Come on. I take a little pride in that now. <laughs> so I'm sitting next to a guy from Harvard and a woman from Duke during the day, and I cannot move the needle at right. all. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I could have stayed up all night. You know, st- I still wouldn't have been able to beat these two. But what I figured out was at happy hour, I could crush the guy from Harvard. I could crush the woman from Duke. Like mm-hmm. They didn't stand a chance. So right. when the office lights went out and the city lights came on, that was my time to shine. That's how I kind of progressed my career. What form did that take? I was the guy, you know. In what way? I could I could get you into, you know, whatever club you wanted. I could get you a reservation. Mm-hmm. I knew where the party was. I knew where, like, the after hours was. Like, you know, it took some time. You taught these uptight bankers how to have fun or showed them. They, yeah, they wanted. So normally, like, and, and, and things have changed on Wall Street, right? But mm-hmm. a normal business model would be, Take your clients out, grab a couple of hot females from the desk, like Mm -hmm. assistants, and let's show our client a good time, right? Right. Not that I was a hot female, but I was fun. You're pretty hot. So. I mean, you know, you're not bad. They would would want, you know, they would want Turney to be out with us to show everyone a good time. Right. And that worked. So so you distinguish yourself not through your technical skills or your book smarts but just because you were fun to be around exactly you know so where does that take you how does that so you still have to be able to do the job though yeah yeah definitely but in sales and trading it's not you know it's it's a lot relationships so it's not i didn't need to have an analytical mind or i I had to be able to do the job correct so so this isn't a technically a business show (laughs) but for just a quick primer what does sales and trading mean um so on wall street when you when you want to either buy or sell a stock, mm-hmm. you need to call a broker and they'll execute it for you. So right. if you're a broker, you're on the sell side, mm-hmm. and you want your clients to call you when you have, let's say, a million share order, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a number of ways you can do that. 
you have you have great research, right? Mm-hmm. Or you have a you have a conference that your client really wants to go to and get you know first rate attention, or perhaps you you just took the trader to Vegas, <laughs> for example, and you have some photos of him. <laughs> you know, so entertaining was a big part of. And you started on the sell side. Though, I was five correct? years at Morgan Stanley, and then I jumped to a hedge fund called the Gallian Group, mm-hmm. and I was considered the buy side. And that doesn't mean I only bought, but it just meant I was the client of Wall Street. And you're, so you are now a decision maker. Money flows in the direction you choose for it to flow. Right. How does your life change at that point? It, I mean, it's the pecking order, at least back then in Manhattan nightlife, was pretty much celebrities models, socialites, and hedge fund guys. Right. You know, like, I could do anything I want. Wow. Like, when I was 31 years old, I was after Galleon, I started a hedge fund called Argus, right? And not even counting the money I was making, the commissions I was paying people on the street was $50 million. So I had $50 million to give out to anyone on Wall Street. So I was really popular. People because, answer your calls. Yes. And they laughed at my jokes. <laughs> anything I wanted. Right. Anything. Yeah. And how does that um how does that affect your mentality over time? You start to believe, you know, mm-hmm. I for a long time I knew I was a fraud and that slowly sort of went away because you've so many people telling you you're a great trader. Oh my God, you're so much fun. Like whatever it is, you start to believe it a little bit. And the other thing that I think when I look back, it's just ridiculous. I literally thought, okay, you know, I'm going to be making at least a million dollars a year for the next 25, 30 years. Right. I did it at 32. Like, sure. Why wouldn't you be able to do it? It's going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, that was just so misguided. So why didn't it keep happening? I mean, there's there's several factors, but you know, I I ended up in rehab twice. Uh-huh. Um, so that that sort of you know took my career in a different direction. Yeah, and you know the markets changed and sure. the job changed, and every time you find easy money in any any industry, it's going to go away in three to five years because the easy easy money gets made. Everyone rushes to do it, or People figure out, you know, why why am I paying these people so much money when, you know, I can cut my costs and I'll keep the money. You know what I mean? Right. So how did the drug start? So I was always sort of a partier, like mm-hmm. a drinker, mm-hmm. uh, you know, smoked weed. Sure. You know, dabbled a little bit, ecstasy, you know, here and there. And I was out one night and I was offered cocaine and so the guy handed it to me and, and and i didn't know what to do with it so i slid it in my pocket mm-hmm. and eventually he was like you know you're gonna you're gonna hit that or what and so right. i was like oh yeah, yeah yeah so i run in the bathroom and i'm staring at this bag of cocaine and i was like do, do i do the whole thing like should, should i pour in the toilet i didn't know right right because as a child of the 80s my my only what would nancy reagan was, think <laughs> and well and len bias right and yeah he died yeah, in 1986 right. and and the story was he did it once, and he died. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you do cocaine, you die. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't do it that night. And I, I went back out to the bar. And, and that was a co-worker, or that was a... It was one of the brokers one of the, entertaining me. Right. 
So he eventually asked for it back, and I handed it back. And mm-hmm. and then fast forward six months, I, I went from Galleon to Argus. I moved from uptown to downtown. My bank account changed. The people I was running around with changed, and it just it didn't look as menacing. Your bank account changed, meaning you had a lot more money. I had a lot more money. Mm-hmm. My job title changed. Everything had changed. You're how old now at this point, and how much uh, are you making? It was like 31, 32. And you're making how much money at that um, point? I was just shy of a million that year. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, I uh, went higher. But um, so I was like, why not? You know, so I went to the bathroom, did one little key bump, and I was just like, wow. Yeah. Like, this is the greatest thing <laughs> I have ever done, right? Yeah. And I tell people, like, I love cocaine. Mm-hmm. Like, Leonardo DiCaprio loves that chick in Titanic. <laughs> like, that's how much I loved it. Right. And I was walking back to the bar, and I was like, this is going to be a problem. Like, it you is. You knew right away. <sighs> because it was too good. It was I felt too powerful. too good. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. Yeah. Because I wanted to feel like that all the time. Right. So I knew it was a problem. I've never done cocaine because I can't control myself around a basket of tortilla chips. <laughs> so I could, until I can pull that together, maybe yeah, maybe use that as the minor leagues. Although I up. think I don't know. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm going to guess your window's closed. I know I don't. I'm not. I've gotten this far without it. I think it's probably a pretty good idea. If you make it to 50 without doing coke, yeah. just, I think I'm going to start smoking. I'm going to start smoking and doing coke. Oh, also, honey, I'm going to start a podcast. That's like, <laughs> those are like three things your wife doesn't want to hear when you turn 50. I'm going to start smoking. Oh, I, the, he said he's going to do drugs, but the, the bigger problem is he wants to do a podcast. Um, so you felt bullet. It's funny you said like the money gave you the confidence to do drugs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so like you like money was your armor gave you some kind of a shield against ramifications. It, yeah. I mean, I started confusing net worth with self worth, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm making a fucking shitload of money, right? You know, people are treating me a certain way. Yeah, it's like it just felt part of part of the culture, like I was supposed to do. And look, there are plenty of people who who made a ton of money who don't pick up cocaine, so. right? I'm not blaming money, but for me, it was this giant cocktail. And so in the book, which I highly recommend all of you go buy and read, you go into great detail of the downward spiral from there. What are, what are some of your favorite highlights from that time? Um, this isn't a highlight, but it goes along with... So there are, two, there are two themes that have run like for my entire life. One is just want to be happy, right? Mm-hmm. And two is if then. So... Uh, when I was making $22,000 a year, I was saying to people, if I could just make $50,000 a year, then I'd be happy. If sure. I could get that girl, then I'd be happy. If I get that promotion, then I'd have a career. Well, so in 2003, 2004, right after bonus time, I'm in my 2,700-square-foot apartment in Tribeca by myself, Christmas Eve, and I'm calling Chase 1-800 number. You know, I punch in my account number, and the automated voice is like, your balance is one million eight hundred thousand six hundred. <laughs> Repeat. Your balance is one million eight hundred thousand. Yes. Your balance is hearing the balance was making me feel better just for a moment. Mm-hmm. But so oh, oh holy night, here's right. your balance. And so so the thing is, you know, when I made when I made two million dollars, I was saying if I could just make three million dollars, 
everything would be okay. I don't know if that was the beginning of the end. Maybe maybe the beginning of the end was when I started doing cocaine. But, you know, th- there's funny stories where, you know, I bought eight front row Yankee tickets for the sole purpose that me and my friend could go outside the stadium three times to smoke cigarettes because they don't have a re-entry. <laughs> so at 2000, I was smoking $2,000 cigarettes. Like another, this is stupid. That's um, fantastic. It's yeah. very, that, that's a brilliant life hack right there. Yes. When you have $2 million in your bank account, you can do that. And no kids or a right. wife, you can do that. I mean, but if I was smart, I would have bought two front row tickets, mm-hmm. right? And, and six. six in the bleachers. Right. <laughs> right. But it was, it was a World Series game, too. And, you know, I mean, this is a stupid story, but I, one thing I used to do is I'd roll up to the bar. The money and cocaine just, you know, sort of made me feel, like, invincible, whatever. Um, and I always did things for the story, right? So one thing I used to do, I, I call, it was called the Babe Ruth. And so I would do a bunch of coke in the bathroom, go to the bar, make sure, like, people are around, whether I knew them well or not, get a tequila, and then I'd pull out, like, 100 milligrams of Viagra. And I'd show everyone, mm-hmm. like I'm about to do a magic trick. And, and you know, people were kind of looking at me like, what the? And so then I'd pop the Viagra, chug the tequila, and then do the Babe Ruth where I was like, you know, swinging my bat and then pointing <laughs> my my bat to the, you know, the, to the bleachers. You're calling it. Calling my shot, right? And then I would just go off and people wouldn't see me for the rest of the night. And, you know, that's when I kind of discovered how awesome hookers are because, you know, I'd already taken the Viagra. What are you going to do? I mean, right. You're, you're I mean, kind of I, committed at that point. If I point. strike out, like, <laughs> I, I, I am committed at that point. The babe did strike out a lot. Yes. Although, besides the obvious physical need, what need were hookers playing in your life at that point? Um, you know, Charlie Sheen said it best. And, you know, he said, you don't pay them to come. You pay them to leave. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to get the wrong impression. I, I don't call escorts anymore. But when I was out of my mind... It was easier. It was simpler. There was no like, when are you gonna leave? Mm-hmm. When like it was, it was transactional, right? And there was obviously there was a lot that I was missing, whether it was intimacy or like a real relationship. But there was a understanding and a give and take. And what did a prostitute cost in 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 uh, two thousand three in New York um, City? You know, you were looking at probably like you know at least in the pools that I was swimming in, like, mm-hmm. you know, four to 600 for the first hour. Mm-hmm. And then depending on, is there a declining marginal rate after that? Can you, can you yeah. average out the cost? And you can negotiate. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how it works. Like, do you get but, a volume discount for hookers or blow? I mean, like, can you negotiate a, a bulk rate oh, with yeah, your dealer? Totally. Totally. <laughs> but the thing is, and people don't, I mean, people probably think I'm lying. When you were doing a lot of cocaine, there were times where they were coming to, like, there was no sex. Right. And people don't understand that. What was what was it? They'd come over, you start partying, you start ripping a few lines. Cocaine makes it a lot harder for you to have sex mm-hmm. without the Viagra. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, like, two hours are up, you know, $800. Right. Like, well, am I going to extend this or yeah. am I just going to call it a night? Yeah. So, I mean, did you, did you just want somebody to hang out with sort of I think part so. of the time? Yeah. Yeah. You've done a lot of. You've had a lot of years to think back on this. What do you? What What were you trying to? What hole were you trying to fill with the money and the blow and the hookers? I think. I mean, it's 
it's the same hole, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm sober now nine nine plus years, mm-hmm. and nothing ever filled that hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, money, sex, drugs, power, pornography, like you name it, nothing ever did. Uh, and it wasn't until I started to get sober and I started to write that there was actually it was more spiritual, if if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. It was more purpose. The writing is more spiritual. Yeah, and just the. With sobriety, like I was doing a lot of work on myself, whether it's therapy or twelve step meeting, and there was something about the emotional connection and the honesty and the spiritual side of it that it did help start to fill the hole. Right. Let's go back to if then. Yeah. I think if then is a very common human trait and probably being exacerbated by social media these days when the distance between your peers is shrunk because I can see somebody partying on a yacht in the Caribbean who I might be able to rationalize is has a thousand times more money than I do, but I still feel like I deserve what they have. Right. How did if then lead you astray? Because it never worked, right? So no matter what my situation was, there was always another buoy and it was always like, you know, well, if I got that, than this, I would. The idea is, if I get X, then I'll feel Y, right? But when you got to X, it was like a moment of euphoria, and then totally dissipated. There's elements of that that are good, right? Because people are like, Turner, you're so driven, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, driven by discontent, like <laughs> I'm never happy. But it, you know, I I chased, right? And you know, there's something it's called uh, affect forecasting. And as humans, we are the worst species of, of predicting future emotions, right? So whatever you think is worst case scenario and like basically it's over. And and look, I'm not talking about, you know, family members getting sick or right. when I thought when I thought leaving Wall Street and losing my house was literally worst case scenario, I can now look back and say, those were gifts. Like, so some of the things that I thought were worst case scenario are some of my biggest gifts. And some of the things that I thought were best case scenario have like brought me down. So when you're, you're sitting there, you, you know, you have a problem when you're, when you're having one man benders in hotel rooms, right. when your uh, wife and daughter are at home in your house that you're having trouble paying for the stress must've been enormous were you in conflict all the time? Did you know you were out of control? Like, how did that feel? It, it was very, very stressful. And it was, you know, for whatever reason, you know, fortunate, charmed, lucky, always managed. Like shit always eventually kind of worked out for me. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of holding on to that. Like, you know, there's some magic, coming my way because you've always gotten away with it up to this point yeah i mean it was it was a decline right things (laughs) were getting worse and kind of why my my book lined up um was i was crashing the same time as the financial collapse right right so you know i'm morality parallel structure of exactly the story so i was i was hoping that somehow things were gonna write themselves but 
deep down I knew. And so, so at that moment when you're, you're, you're hitting bottom again and you're going into rehab, what are you thinking about the logistics of your life at that point? Like, are you thinking about money at all? Are you thinking about, well, how the fuck am I going to pay my rent when I get out of here? So the first time I went to rehab was in 2006 Mm -hmm. and I came back and I went back to wall street because I had a mortgage to pay. Right. I had a lifestyle to keep like, you know, I was going to eventually send my daughter. She was one of the time, you know, to whatever private school or, or whatever it was. So I went back to wall street out of necessity. Right. And, Second time, I you know came back, and I kind of knew I shouldn't go back to Wall Street. And then this 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 one not even interview. I was trying to sell them this hedge fund some research, right? And it turned into an interview. And next thing I know, like I'm being called back in for this seven figure job, right? And I'm like thinking about like seven figures solves a lot of problems, but creates others. <laughs> I knew in my heart. I just knew it wasn't right. And at that point, you're divorced already? Well, we were never officially married. But oh, okay. she, my girlfriend had left me. My daughter was four at this time. Mm-hmm. I'm living in a 6,000-square-foot house that's going into foreclosure right. by myself. And I don't know. I It was like an outer body experience, but I just knew it wasn't right. And I knew I'd be going back to Wall Street just for the money call it a leap or whatever i was 40 years old at the time and i was just like i'm not i'm not doing it so how do you what's your plan at that point like how do you like i can i can understand feeling that in your gut you're making the right decision but then how do you work out well okay i know that's not it but what is and how do you make a living after that you know i i trusted my gut which early on in my trading career like my gut was you know definitely helpful right and I lost my way along the, you know, along the way. I, I had, I had faith. I don't, it's hard to explain. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for a long time, I, I knew I had to stay sober. Like that was first and foremost, but I'm so quick to discount my own resiliency and I'm, and I'm so quick to discount my ability to figure shit out. Right. right. So very often I live in the wreckage of, the, of my future. Right. And I'm, and I'm what, do you, what do you mean by that? The wreckage of my future is all of the shit that I project and all of the worst case scenarios mm-hmm. and everything that's going to go wrong right. that hasn't gone wrong yet. <laughs> and I sit there in my head and I worry about it. Yeah. And so I, I had to get out of that headspace and I just had to say, I'm going to stay sober and I'm going to be the best dad that I can be. Mm-hmm. And, and I like writing, so I'm going to try to write. I wasn't at a point yet where I was, I was about to be homeless. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't far, but I was. I knew like I had a roof over my head at least until the police pulled me out of the house. Right? <laughs> they had a lot of other people to pull out of houses right, back then. Right? Yeah. And and yeah. So I I was just kind of taking a leap of faith because I'd made so many mistakes leading up to that. Yeah. It's like, well, let's make a new mistake. Sure. An, an original one. Right. Right. And so, where what was your first job after that? I tried selling research. I hated it. Uh, and the research wasn't, it was like this junior varsity product on Wall Street. And it was humiliating. I was going back to like former colleagues, you know, begging them to take this like low level research. And, you know, some people were nice. A lot of people kind of, you know, enjoyed <laughs> seeing how low <laughs> oh. I'd fall. Um, and how did that make you feel when you saw 
them looking at you with condescension. You know what? For the first six months, and I don't know if it, it had to like coincide with my sobriety, mm-hmm. but I was just like, fine. Right. Like, yeah. Let's see how much I can take. Yeah. Like, so I, I was comfortable being the punching bag or the mm-hmm. welcome mat. I was mm-hmm. just like, whatever. Right. Um, There's more important things. Right. But that allowed me to write on the side. Okay. And writing did it for me. How long did it take you to write your, to get a deal, to get a book deal? So, and I've heard this said before a couple different ways, but some people say you have to write a book before you can publish your first book. So I wrote a really shitty novel in the summer of 2010. And as soon as I typed the end, I was like, okay, where's, where's my agent? Right. Let's publish this. Yes. I didn't know how bad it was, uh-huh. and I didn't know how <laughs> difficult the you know the process was. Yes. So I was rewriting, editing, working on it, trying to like you know set myself up, and I decided one night. You know, this is like six months after I wrote it, spring of 2011. I was like, I got to do something else, and so I wrote one night for six hours straight, and it, it ended up being the buy side. But it, mm-hmm. I saw something very compelling with my career lined up with you know the markets over those 15 years right because there were so many similarities sure and i wrote something emailed it to a few friends started getting passed around right i got a call from a literary agent like a week later wow she said would you be interested in turning this into a book proposal and i was like yeah definitely and she's like all right why don't we meet in in two weeks and you know we'll talk about it i go Mm -hmm. how about this i go why don't I write a book proposal, send it to you, and we'll still meet in two weeks. She was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Like, Thinking nothing. you'd never do right. it. So we hang up, call my, my, my sober friend Brian, and I'm like, what's a book proposal? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you told me? Yeah. I, I did one in 10 days, sent it to her, uh-huh. and she wanted to sign me like, as soon as I walked in. That's awesome. How long did it take you to, to make money as a writer? Like, You got an advance on that book. Wait, I'm... I'm supposed to make money. <laughs> I, I was very fortunate with my first book deal. Yeah. And it wasn't Wall Street money, but right. it was. But it's put a roof over your head money. It was great. Yeah. It was great. You know, so my first book, I, I, I got a, a paid a, like a good chunk. What was difficult was two years after the book was published. Right. You know, what, where's, so, what's so, next? Right. So. I started ghostwriting. Mm-hmm. I was writing articles for CNBC mm-hmm. and here and there, like I wrote for Vice and, you know, just different periodicals. But that's like a couple hundred bucks here and there. Right. But I, like, a, like a good one like was Vice, right? Right. They would pay me a dollar a word. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait, you're going to pay me a dollar a word? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, Here's and you don't care how many 5, words? 5,000 words. <laughs> I ended up like delivering like 2,200 words. Sure. They published it. Yeah. But I was like, what? I'm not going to be right. It was a very, 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 very cold <laughs> night. Wait a minute. Are you telling me you sacrificed your art for the almighty yes. dollar? <laughs> I mean, times are tough. Stephen there King was, says you should cut all the that's out of your writing. You you're should. like, that's a dollar per right. that. <laughs> Fuck that. There, there was a moment, though, <laughs> in 2011, before I got my book deal, where I had to choose between toilet paper and cigarettes. Ooh. I, I was down to like my last few dollars. Money was coming, mm-hmm. but I had to choose between. So what I chose was cigarettes and then public. 
toilets. Can you buy Lucy toilet paper on the streets in Manhattan? Oh, well, you can steal <laughs> toilet paper. <laughs> but it's, you, where's a good place to steal toilet it's paper? It's easier from? in the winter. <laughs> you know, whatever. Taco Bell, Starbucks. But you want Why a big, is it easier in the winter? Because you have like a big coat. Oh. <laughs> you know, in the summer you're wearing shorts and like. Right. There's no real good place to it's hide. It's harder to stash a, a roll of Charmin. Right. right. Cigarettes or toilet paper, the ultimate purchase decision. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So what's how do you make a living today? What's your what's what's your livelihood look like? Um, you know, I've I feel fortunate and blessed and super super grateful. I'm not living any extravagant lifestyle, but sure. I've been able to you know ghostwrite two books. I'm working on my next book. I've been writing you know these sort of uh, freelance jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get paid to speak, you know, which is which is fun and, and great money, right? And I and I've kind of been piecing it together. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I'm I'm working with a friend and you know doing some fun creative projects. I just recently signed with a manager at a place called Management Three Hundred and Sixty. So I'm 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 kind of doing some work or trying to get work done screenwriting wise. I did two TV shows. I behind the camera I worked for a show called Billions on sure. Showtime. It's a great show. Um, in front of the camera, I did three seasons for the Filthy Rich Guy that was on CNBC. It was definitely different than Wall Street and knowing where the next check was coming from. Right. But quality of life is phenomenal. Do you ever wonder if you never took that first bump of cocaine, what you'd be doing right now? Well, I believe that I probably would be worse off. In what way? So cocaine brought me to my knees, and it brought me to my knees quick. Mm-hmm. I took the express train, right? It, <laughs> it took me a while to get right. sober. Yeah. You know, there was probably three years of darkness. Sure. But without the cocaine, I might still be out there drinking, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't going great, mm-hmm. you know? it. But I always managed to get to work. Or, right. you know, and I lived in the city, so I didn't have to drink and drive. But it was heading in the wrong direction. Right. So I think it would have been a longer, slower death, mm-hmm. and not enough bad shit was happening where I had to go to rehab immediately. So I think cocaine ended up being catalyzed your thing. sobriety. Yeah. Thinking about your story and you say, okay, so you don't do the blow, you don't, you don't go down as fast, but maybe you just sit there and suffer on suffer on Wall Street. I mean, that sounds like an oxymoron, but. You're doing something you're, your heart's not in because you're making a lot of money. Right. It's like that's a hard treadmill to get off of of your own volition. Yeah. Well, that's 100%. Like, I don't know if I would have been able to leave on my own, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, people talk about wealth addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, that was definitely part of it. Like, I didn't obsess about the numbers in the bank, but I obsessed about what those numbers allowed me to do. So, you know, like... I had Naughty by Nature perform at my 34th birthday party, <laughs> right. right? Just because. Sure. Right. And I was yeah. addicted to being able to do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I never cared about how much was in the bank because I assumed it was never going to end. Who were you trying to impress? I think myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I was my own biggest competition. Yeah. You know, of course, there were people who were doing bigger and better things than me. But I was really, I, I think I was really trying to impress myself. And today, who are you trying to impress? I'm really not trying to impress anyone, right. you know? So back in 2012, I just got a big book deal from Random House. Mm-hmm. I was seeing my daughter or talking to her every single day. I got through family court. Me and my ex were getting along great. Mm-hmm. I'd made all of my amends. Mm-hmm. 
And I was sitting there on the couch and like, I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm an asshole. Like, something is wrong with me. So I went to the computer and I Googled the pursuit of happiness because mm-hmm. I wanted to know what it meant in 1776. What I discovered was happiness meant honor, integrity, how you live your life. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it doesn't mean... But I have a Porsche. <laughs> right, right. Fancy cars and great vacations. Right. And I always thought happiness and pleasure were synonymous. Right. So on that day, I said, you know what? Fuck happiness. I don't even want to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of made serenity my goal. Right. And ironically, since that day, I've never been happier, right? Sure. And so... I'm not trying to impress anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be the best person I can. Right. And it's it's progress, not perfection. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to earn that father of the year mug that mm-hmm. my daughter gives me every year. Right. right. Yeah. I'm trying to be a good friend. If someone says, hey, I need you to help me move on Thursday. If I say yes, I'm there. Yeah. You know, and so I just try to really keep my word yeah. and be honest and be a good friend, be a good brother, be a, and and that that really keeps me content. Yeah. Do you worry about money these days? There's financial insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um my daughter's in 8th grade. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she says she wants to go to Duke, right? <laughs> Study like, hard, sweetie. Right. Um Let's see if coach K can put in a word. <laughs> yes. For her. It does exist, but I don't obsess about it. Yeah. I'm not I'm not chasing the money. Right. I need money. And I'd like more of it. Right. But I'm not sacrificing important shit to get it. That's not the goal. Right. I want to just ask a couple things about Galleon, if that's okay. Yeah. So the you know first. What? I made a rap song. <laughs> I heard. I read about that. Money on Galleon. Do you have a link to that? Is it on what, online somewhere? It's. I put it up on my website. Okay, tell me about the rap song you wrote about Galleon. So there's Galleon a... was the hedge fund that you were, the first hedge fund you worked for on the yes. buy side. And there is my former boss, Raj Rajaratnam, mm-hmm. is currently serving 11 years for insider trading. Right. We threw a party for Wall Street. And typically it's the other way around. The sell side entertains the buy side. Right. We're like, we're so bad that we're going to, we're entertaining Wall Street. Yeah. So it, it was like, hot ticket you wanted to get on this on this list yeah. right and so we hired this company East superstar they you know they got diana ross for us and mm-hmm. whatnot and and one of the partners was this guy named jesse and he said hey i i got commissioned to write a rap song about your hedge fund right. you know do you want to meet me at the studio and i was like yeah that's so funny yeah so but my rap experience was me and my best friend nathaniel would go to his barn in Kenny Monk, Maine, yeah, and rap to an audience of zero, mm-hmm. and you know, so I had no business going to the studio and you know and laying, laying this laying down, down tracks. But, um, so I, so I just I, I I go to Jesse James. I'm like, people call us the Good Chip, so I was thinking maybe we sample Good Chip Lollipop by Shirley Temple. He's like, let's do it, and so he just started writing, and then I got in the booth and I I I jumped on his last line, but I was like, hit me, bid me. I need liquidity. Stop me on five. Stupidity. I'm at Galleon where it all connects. Trade in healthcare and biotech. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. That uh, holds up. <laughs> holds up through down, up and down markets. Yes. Uh, we're going to try to find a link to that so we can put this on the on the podcast page. Galleon, as, uh, it, I didn't put two and two together when I first saw that you worked at Galleon, but yeah, so Galleon is most well-known for the fall of its founder getting busted in a very high profile insider trading case. 
you had left long before that went down. Yes. And the statute of limitations is closed. And so if the New York Southern District AG is listening, there's no case here. <laughs> Chuck Rhodes, I believe, is his name. Yes. But what, what, what I found so interesting about that isn't that Raj, a guy who runs a hedge fund, who I'll just assume is a gambler by nature and is, and is doing something to always have the edge over the other guy. But what blew me away is that the, his sources of information – let me just read one guy's resume – he was getting inside information from um, a guy named Rajat Gupta. Who Check out this resume. He was a managing director at McKinsey, making over $6 million a year, a board member at Goldman Sachs, Procter & Gamble, and American Airlines, and the University of Chicago, and he's an advisor to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. What the hell is this guy trying to make an extra couple million bucks for? He's, I mean, is, is this a case of a guy who's worth $150 million who feels like an asshole because he's not worth a billion? What goes through his head? Like, yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of people like that, and, and it, it's. I think when you get to that level, it's less about at least for Raj. I don't know about Raja Gupta, but it's more about winning than the actual money. Mm-hmm. Just winning, win everything. I think you you get you get kind of caught up in it, and you get just sucked into it, you know. And and so th- that one of the most famous things that was in the trial was. He was at a, a board meeting when Goldman Sachs decided that they were going to, or, or no, they were getting an infusion from um, Buffett. Mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs was oh, right, like a yes. five billion dollar. He makes the call at three fifty five, right? Mm-hmm. Market closes at four. Raj gets the call. They buy a shitload of Goldman stock. Right. At four oh two, it hits the tape, and the stock's up like forty. I mean, it can't get any more obvious than, than that <laughs> you know i mean yeah so he did he, he was indiscriminate in in the way he went about doing it even. right do you think that's because he had been doing it so well and I, i'm not looking to speculate nor am i looking to denigrate i'm just i'm just fascinated by the mentality of these guys that will risk their reputations and their livelihood to right make, i well, mean that's the thing money like, raj could have been one of the best without cheating Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't need to cheat, mm-hmm. um, which makes it all the more fascinating. But, um, you know, when I got there to Galleon, we're talking 1999, that was the culture. You know, it was a Wild West. Right. You know, like you try to get edge. Right. Um, and there were lots of gray areas. You know, I wasn't on the street corners paying lawyers with like brown paper bags. Right. right? But, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, right? Sure. And I got some great calls. <laughs> so what would you tell a, a shiny new MBA who's making his way to Wall Street today? What kind of advice would you give him you or know, her? I, I sort of feel like, you know, I tell people, if if you're passionate about it and, and you truly love finance, then, you know, it's a great living and it's a mm-hmm. great career. And, you know, you should pursue that. And, you know, obviously you got to continue to, check yourself like there was a moment when i started making decisions based on consequence versus right and wrong and that's when things kind of went astray Mm -hmm. reflecting back i would have liked to check in on the whole if then every time like what am i doing wrong if if i'm never happy but for a young person i would say if you're truly passionate about it and you love it like jump all in and 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 do it to the best of your ability if you're there just because you want to make a lot of money okay but good luck Right. Like, you know, because everyone on Wall Street has a number, right? 
Mm-hmm. Everyone has a number that if they hit that number, they're going to retire and leave, right? And I've seen so many people hit that number, but things change, right? Yeah. You know, now they're dating a woman in the intern program and, you know, their three kids want to go to private school and, you know, they want to buy a second house. So that 10 million now becomes 15. Right. So no one ever really hits their number, you know, because I always thought I was going to make a ton of money, leave Wall Street, you know, on my own and and do my own thing. And, you know, they call it the golden handcuffs. You know? Right. Attorney, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Any any advice um, you can give? What should I be doing with my so life? So what I think you should do is make sure that the glass doors are <laughs> open, not closed. I think he needs to put a big Duke sticker on that glass door so that I don't right. fly into it again. Uh, no, you know, somebody did give me some great advice before my first book came out, and and they said they're like, "Tony, like, you know, you're not going to get rich writing a book, right? right. But." All of these opportunities and, and, and it's going to open your life up in ways that you can, couldn't even imagine and didn't really get it at the time. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, since writing my first book, things that I didn't even know existed or opportunities have come my way all because the result of, of writing this book. And But I wrote the book because I needed to write it and mm-hmm. I had to write it and I wanted to write it and my intentions were pure. Right. It wasn't about making a lot of money. It wasn't about becoming a New York Times bestseller. It was like, I have to write this book. Mm-hmm. And Meaning you had you, you, you needed to, because you needed to make a living or because no, it was inside it was, of you? It and, was inside of me, and I just needed... I mean, I did want to be a writer, mm-hmm. but it was... It was cathartic. Right, right. And, and the thing that... I, probably the biggest gift I got from writing the book was for the first 40 years of my life, everything was calculated in terms of, okay... How many friends will this make me? How many friends will this lose me? <laughs> right. Like every every move and facet of my life, I calculated risk reward, right? Yeah. And for the first time in my life, I said, you know what? I'm gonna tell the truth. People may hate me for it. People may think I'm an awful human being, but I don't care. Right. And, and what was the fallout? Strangely Leading up to the book, I got threatening phone calls. People telling me, if my name's in it, I'll fucking kill you. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, what's your name? Like, you know. So leading up, I was getting a lot of threatening stuff. Right. Um, and I've gotten a ton of hates along my way. I think my favorite um, comment in the comment section was that even his eyebrows are smug. Um, but <laughs> so Let me look. They're not that smug. The greatest gift I got was, for the first time ever in 40 years, I did something just because I wanted to and it was the right thing to do. Right. And what I learned was I would rather you not like me than for you like to, for you to like me and me only show, show you a certain aspect or what I wanted you to see. Right. And so, you know, of course, I'm still insecure. I still want people to like me. But I don't care as much, yeah. and I don't let it ruin my day. And if you don't like me, it's it's not my fault, right? You know, I'm, unless I was a dick or I did something mm-hmm. rude or impolite. But if if you don't like me and I'm being my normal self, I'm sorry. Yeah, and oddly, that probably draws more people to you because you're just you could give two hells right. about it, right? So, hey, man, thank you very much for doing this. I thank appreciate you. it. All right, best of luck with everything.
Appreciate it. Thank so you. yeah, it's a real treat to revisit some of these old conversations that I have and reflect on how the podcast has changed and how it hasn't changed and how the topics that I really cared about back then are in, in a lot of ways, the same as I still care about four years, almost 180 episodes in, and that's encouraging and it's fun. And I'm grateful for the friendships that I've developed through these kinds of conversations and, and the audience that has followed. So thank you for listening. Hey, if you haven't read Turney's book, I really encourage you to do so. It's really funny. It's really interesting. It's just, ah, it hurts at times as we discussed, but it's also encouraging in the end that, you know, here's this guy that, you know, had a few very, very bad years, but got himself back. And he has a very strong relationship with his daughter who four years later is now off at college and doing great. And I bumped into Turney at a swim meet with Jesse a couple of weeks ago, and it was just great to see the guy. Buy Jesse's, uh, sorry, buy Jesse's book too. If you haven't read Living with a Seal, it's totally worth your time, but buy Turney's book, The Buy Side. It's a really, really good read, whether you like memoirs or redemption tales or books about how Wall Street actually works. Interesting on all these levels, I highly recommend it. And hey, folks, if you haven't written a review of Crazy Money, I sure would appreciate you popping onto your podcast app there and giving us five stars and saying really nice things. Also, please share these episodes with your friends. It's really the only way we grow. Independent podcasts don't get a lot of love from the podcast apps. The only way they grow is by word of mouth and your word and your mouth matters to me. Okay, that sounded weird. All right, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.